Welcome, everyone, to the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you for being here today, whether you're here in person or watching or listening online. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us. Um, for those of you for whom this is the first Commonwealth Club program you've uh, been a part of, uh, the Commonwealth Club is a 118-year-old nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the uh, civil discussion of important issues. So you can find more programs. We're doing more than 500 programs a year, even during the pandemic. So you can find more upcoming programs, as well as audio and video from past programs at commonwealthclub.org. Uh, the Commonwealth Club wants to thank Gilead Sciences for its generous support of the Michelle Miao Show. And this today programs today... I'll start that sentence over. Our program today is pr presented in partnership with Gappa Theater, The Connection at the San Francisco Community Health Center, and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. And this project was made possible with support from California Humanities, nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. If you're watching us live on YouTube, use the chat box there to ask some questions, and we'll send them up to our moderator today. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao, the producer and host, of course, of the Michelle Miao Show, and our host for today, as well as a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Michelle, good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us for this very important conversation. Lessons we've learned from pandemics, the HIV AIDS crisis, and now COVID-19. And so our incredible panel here today of activists, advocates, community members, your neighbors, your friends, your family members, we're all here to discuss what we learned. Our speakers today, Ignatius Bao, who's the former HIV Prevention Program Coordinator for the Asian and Pacific Islander American Health Forum, also former member of the President's Advisory Council on HIV AIDS. We have Cecilia Chung, who's a Senior Director of Strategic Initiatives and Evaluation for the Transgender Law Center, and who's also a Health Commissioner for San Francisco. And uh, last but not least, Vince Chrysostomo, who's the Director of Aging Services for the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Let's give a warm round of applause if you're here in person and online <laughs> for our speakers. I'll start by sharing, you know, what I felt, what I remember when um, COVID-19 became something that I should be aware about. And it was February of last year, um, right? It was last year. <laughs> it feels all like a blur. But my wife was actually in Thailand visiting her family. And so I was following news from Asia constantly just to keep up. And so when it was reported, yeah, in my mind, I was worried about it. I was alarmed by it. But... Maybe it was my American exceptionalism or perhaps arrogance or whatever it was. In the back of my mind, I told myself, well, it's not going to make its way here to the United States. Right. And so let's start by having our speakers um, share, you know, your moment. And maybe even as naive as I was, you may have recalled that for yourself when you heard of HIV AIDS for the very first time. We'll start with Vince. <laughs> Well, I was actually in Japan. I was teaching aerobics. Um, it was during the era of flash dance. And my boyfriend at the time showed up with the English language newspaper and said that there's this disease killing gay people. And we think all Americans have it. And he asked me if I had it. And I'm like, no, I don't have it. And I think you need to leave now. Cause, so, and I didn't think anything about it. And then I returned to the U.S. and... A friend of mine who lived in San Francisco was telling our friends in Hawaii that he had this gay cancer, that he wasn't expected to live. And then later that year, I moved to San Francisco, and it was not the San Francisco that would be in summer of 1984 that I had come out in in 1979. Thank you. Ignatius. So I came late to my own awareness, even though I was here in San Francisco, I was working as an immigration and civil rights attorney. And I think the moment for me was as an attorney going to a first training, um, volunteer attorneys to be able to help people with HIV and AIDS at that time, do things like their last wills and, and testaments. 
And as I sat there through that training, I realized this is going to change my life as I was still struggling to come out. And I knew that as a gay man, that this was going to have an impact on me. I didn't know how and when, um, but that I think moment for me of sitting in that training and probably in 1987 and realizing this is, this is going to be a huge part of my life and the life of my community. I've, I must say I was pretty oblivious, you know, in the beginning because um, I moved to the United States in 1984, at the end of 1984. And, um, and it's not like there were a lot of discussions about HIV, you know, like in um, in my community circles and um, especially, you know, at, um, not among my Asian friends. Um, part of it is because, you know, it's being labeled as, you know, like um, a, a mysterious disease that was impacting the gay community. That's how it was first um, reported. And then it was gay cancer and then it was gay related um, in, immune Grit, uh, like, yeah, so, yeah, grit was the last one before, you know, like, they start labeling it HIV and AIDS. And and so for me, um, I think, you know, at the time, I ended up contributing to some of the misinformations because there were no stories about Asians or Pacific Islanders who um, were li- who had tested positive for HIV. You know, like all we knew was um, it was like sweeping the entire gay communities, and um, and it, you know, like you can see that. You know, like what, if you were going to a club, you know, in San Francisco at that time, you know, like most of the places were half empty. You know, like when you know normally it should be like really like um, festive and buzzing. So, um, you know, something was going on, but you just don't know. Well, I knew something was going on. I just didn't know like how much of an impact. And I think that the first time I ever like recognized the real impact of it was when I saw the quilt. Mm. You know, mm. Michelle, Yeah. one of the things that I also remember based on what Celia said is that in, at least in New York, there's a rumor that Asians didn't get it. Mm-hmm. So when I tested, when I went to get my test, I thought it's not going to matter because I'm not going to have it. And so I just left and I didn't even go back to get my results. And then I got a, I was getting into a taxi on the corner of 72nd and Broadway in New York. And I got this chill and I thought, ooh, something's going to happen. And so that night I went home and there was a card in the mail said, please come back to the clinic. We need to talk to you about your test. So that was April of 1989. So... Mm. And I, the result came back positive. Vince, I think that, uh, you know, you touch on um, my second question or my next question, which is that moment when, when, where it feels real. And the, it, it took me a few months after even the country went to lockdown for COVID-19 to finally feel like this is a real thing. And I was sitting um, on this very chair and uh, doing a program. We had not we were still doing virtual programs just like this. I think wearing face shields. Um, and on my iPad, I started getting these notifications um, come in and they're from St. Mary's or St. Joseph's hospital. And I couldn't turn the notifications off. Um, and so as I'm on the air, I get a notification that a family member had passed. Uh, when did it become real for, for you? Um, We'll begin with Cecilia. Um, so it, it's a hard question to answer because the first time that I started to think that it would impact me was when I saw um, the quilts for the first time in San Francisco. And then um, later on, you know, because at the time I just came out um, as trans and I was impacted by everything associated with being trans. So I lost my jobs, you know, I um, lost my support with, um, from my family and, um, and I ended up like um, being homeless um, on the street of San Francisco in the Tenderloin. Um, And I had to like rely on survival sex work, um, you know, to, to survive. And also at the same time, you know, I, I was self-medicating. So I was pretty sure, you know, like that eventually um, it will all catch up, you know, that I would get tested HIV positive, you know, but the first time when I was tested, I was in the emergency room of um, CPMC and the result came back negative. Um, 
<laughs> Actually, at that time, I thought, oh, something's wrong. You know, the test was wrong. You know, why wouldn't I be positive? You know, because like, I was also sharing needles at the time. And then a year later, lo and behold, you know, like I um, get tested again. This time um, at the um, at the Mission Neighborhood Health Center um, on 16th Street, and um, I the result came back positive. And I remember that I was in total shock. You know, like um, one of a friend of one of our friends, you know, a friend of Ignatius and and Vince and mine, Dom, Dominic, you know, like sat um, with me at the at the like op- at the new Yobe Boina, um Garden, you know, it, they just opened it. You know, I remember sitting by sitting by the fountain and um, and really going through all these rationale and say, oh, at least you know, I'm not going to die tomorrow. I will have enough time to straighten out my affair. And that's all I could think about, you know, for a long time. You know, that um, I was going to die in a year. So, like, what the hell? So that's hard to follow uh, Vince and Cecilia's story. So I think it really became real for me at my first funeral for someone that I knew who passed. Um, And I think the fact that, you know, all the gay friends sat at one side of the, of the service and all the family members sat on the other side. Um, And I remember as we left, they, you know, gave us uh, pamphlets to tell us that we were going to go to hell because we were uh, gay. Um, uh, And that, lack of support, that lack, that division, um, even at that moment of grief, um, I think also then made me realize in a very emotional way how much this was not just an individual issue, but an issue for our families and our communities. Um, as, as Cecilia had said, up to that point, there was this perception that um, Asians and Pacific Islanders were immune or somehow weren't going to be impacted. And it was clear that those impacts were going to be in our in our families and in our communities. When I first met Ignatius, I was like, we need you. And he's like, and I said, you need to say this at this meeting. And he's like, why do I need to say it? And I said, like, because you're a lawyer. They'll listen to what you, you know, you have credibility. The rest of us are like artists, waiters, you know, bus boys. It's like we didn't, I thought, God, this is really serious. We don't have a, I didn't think we had a strong skill set. But then I learned, you know, never, never underestimate people, never underestimate that a handful of committed individuals cannot accomplish some really great things. But I just remembered, <laughs> like, we need to bring Ignatius. We need credibility. And, and, and I would say, and I would say that we had a lot of allies. So this is also the moment of the LGBT Asian community also finding its voice and identity here in San Francisco. Again, that we take that for granted right now, um, but it was really hard for those first elected officials who were straight, who stood with us. And so judges like Louie and Singh and Julie Tang and elected officials like Mabel Tang, who um, came and supported us, um, uh, embraced us as people and welcomed us and put their credibility on the line to speak up uh, against uh, homophobia um, and to advocate for more funding and services and programs for people with HIV and AIDS. And also a wake, wake up call for us, I think, you know, like that, because Asians, you know, like we are the model minorities and we don't really talk about sex openly, you know, let alone like giving lessons on how to put a condom on. So, you know, these are all like new, these are all new for us at the time. And thank God for Vince, you know, and um, his love like this theater, you know, like that really, you know, like make, make it easier to lighten up some of these conversations. I'm going to go off script uh, just because we already have brought up this point. But, you know, with with AIDS, HIV, uh, the LGBTQ community was discriminated against. You know, many people that uh, created the narrative that it affected the LGBTQ community. So if you were not LGBTQ, it wouldn't affect you. Or in some cases, if, you know, you're AAPI, you won't, you won't get it. Uh, in this case, in COVID-19, however... You know, if you're Asian, you have it in some sense. And I know that that's a heavy statement to make, but, 
being LGBTQ and AAPI, having survived AIDS, HIV, and then living through COVID-19, I mean, you're both. What can you say or share with us, you know, the your thoughts, the impact of surviving both pandemics and both identities being targeted for violence, hate, uh, being the scapegoat, being the blame. We'll start with Vince. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to start with me. <laughs> um, well, there were two, a few things. First, when the, we started hearing about COVID, and we were already hearing things coming out of the Oval Office. I don't know how I'm supposed to say, you know, but I thought, oh, this is not good. This is not good. And cross my fingers. I said, if this, you know, and I remember we went in shelter in place, I think on March the 16th or 17th of 2020. And I remember going to the grocery store or I had to go to Kaiser, actually. And um, I think they canceled my appointment. And so I was walking to the Target over on Geary and I was wearing a mask. And I heard these two guys were walking toward me and they started saying just racially, you know, and I thought, okay, you know, and I kept walking and I went to Target. Then I went to Lucky's and I was going down the frozen food section and this woman came back and she went like this and pushed herself up against the wall. And then the last thing I did was I'd gone, I went to a market in the Hate Street and they made me stand outside and it was raining and I realized they were letting other people go in and I finally said, hey, you know, why and they let me in and then I realized what was happening and I just crumbled like all those years of living what we lived through and I thought I can't do this again I just cannot do this again it's not fair and I just really like all the strength you know that we cultivate it just started to crumble and um but then I was lucky I was doing all these lotteries to buy a house. And my loan agent said, Vince, snap out of it. No, he didn't see it like that. He's like, Vince, in times like this, you need to make choices that are optimistic. Optimism brings hope. Where do you want to be? If there's anything in your life that's taught you, at one point this will end, where do you want to be? And so I just started to use this as a time to reframe my life, look at what we didn't get right the first time, and just to kind of redo that. I don't know if I answered your question, but yes, it's, yeah, I think and it's still something that's in process, right? you know, and I feel that if ever there was a reason to have survived the AIDS epidemic, it's been COVID so that we can show and we can tell people this is what happened the first time around. Don't let it happen again. Mm-hmm. I really felt that state, that last statement <laughs> as much as I wanted to crawl under a rock throughout this uh, year and a half. Ignatius. So, unfortunately, and even more so today, we respond to what's going on out of fear rather than out of love. And I think one of the things that we learned through HIV and, and AIDS and are learning the hard way again through this pandemic of COVID is that if we allow that fear to be what drives us and that's what creates the stigma. So again, it wasn't just against LGBTQ people, but it was, you know, at one point it was hemophiliacs and Haitians and homosexuals. And so there was the stigma against um, those populations as well. And I think that has turned to the anti-Asian hate that um, and bias that we've seen in our communities that Vince just shared about. And again, I think the lessons, just as we all came together around HIV and AIDS, Uh, across races, across gender identities, across sexual orientation, across different ways of of being in the world that we realized that we had to come together to to come up with the, the response that we needed. And I think today we're learning what it means to be essential workers and the luxury of being able to work from home versus having to to go to work uh, and physically be exposed, Um, what it means to um, have housing, to have food as basic necessities. It's not just about healthcare, it's about how we live our lives. And so I think those lessons are gonna be important to carry forward and hopefully policymakers and those who have more power and influence can put 
real solutions behind addressing those underlying causes and, and issues. And Cecilia? Um, I think that I have a, a little bit of a different take on this, you know, like, and I really appreciate what Ignatius just says, you know, because we did learn, you know, even from the HIV epidemic that, you know, like the social support system is crucial, you know, like um, for the survivals of those living with HIV. And I think that here it's like, it's working in very similar way. Um, the difference um, back then was that, the leadership in Washington, D.C. didn't acknowledge, you know, like um, the impact of HIV for years and years. Um, and the the leadership, when the onset of COVID start, started, um, started scapegoating the Asian community, especially Chinese community. And, you know, and I think that those are really the power of these leadership and um, and they you know, like they actually, I need to say that I would hold them accountable, you know, like for, um, you know, like for the the harm that like both epidemics have done to different communities. Um, the, the difference this time is that I think we organize faster. Um, we also have more um, allies, you know, in um, in the cause. And so, you know, like scientists like stepped up and, you know, I say that, you know, this is, this should not be called, you know, like a Chinese, um, what's that term? Uh, the, the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus, you know, that should be a, a specific name, the scientific name for it. Um, and I think that that's really important because last time, you know, like when we have HIV, they start calling it grit and guess what, you know, like it just um, worsened the kind of stigma and discriminations that the community face. Um, so I think that that's number one, the difference. Um, and number two is because of the like widespread impact of COVID, I think that um, it was really hard for Congress to ignore, you know, like for um, for the HIV, you know, it wasn't until a boy named Ryan White um, spoke in front of of the public um, in front of a camera that she um, that he um, caught HIV from you know a, a blood transfusions that it became a national issues you know that um, that the leadership in DC um, start to like look at how to um, create resources for that you know like look at look at COVID, you know, like it didn't take long for them to send out the first um, stimulus check, you know, to everybody because they knew the impact, you know, had that happened back, um, back in the days, you know, like it might have already prevented more death, you know, like because they would have the nutrition necessary to fight off some of the opportunistic infection. So call me bitter, but I think that I just need to call spade a spade. Oh, how can we not be you know, bitter? Go ahead, Vince. One thing that I, a point that needs to be made is that now more than any time in history in this country, it's time for people to get up and speak their truth because otherwise history will be written in a way that doesn't hold those accountable because this was a leadership issue. You know, COVID has killed more people or at least the same amount of people in 18 months that it's taken HIV 40 years to do. And that's a huge difference. And the fact that if you look at how leadership responded to this, you look at what was said, and at what point in our history in this country have we ever not paid attention to the experts? And yet here, to placate certain people, people just turned a blind eye. And I hold people accountable because, you know, People, I remember, you know, I was a performer. I remember people like, oh, I don't want to play a gay character because it might hurt my career. I'm like... Your career, who knows you now, you know? And it's like you placate these people or you cater to this sort of leadership. And what? 700,000 people in this country died? And I, you know, it's like when we have elections, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but we're supposed to be neutral. I'm like, how can you be neutral? We live through this. If anybody isn't going to speak up about this... If anybody should speak about it, it should be us. Mm -hmm. Ignatius would love for you to add also on uh, failed leadership or how leadership 
can affect or impact our communities during pandemics as you have served on an advisory council to the president, to a president, not the previous. Go, go ahead. Yeah, so, so certainly we have to hold those leaders accountable, but I have long stopped looking to the to those sort of official leaders for um, what I consider leadership. I think leadership comes from our communities and just as um, HIV and AIDS also created leaders like Vincent Cecilia, who went on and did work globally uh, to lend their experience and expertise to fighting the epidemic of HIV and AIDS across the, the world, I think this was also a coming of age for many of us. And, you know, Vince jokes that, you know, I was a lawyer and so supposedly could talk better than others, but we created a whole generation of, of leaders, of organizations, of movements, because we had to, because there was nobody else um, for us to look to. And so I think we had to learn those skills um, to support each other, be mentors and role models for each other. Um, and I think we're seeing that today. I, I have to point out, you know, for so long, we lumped together Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, and the impact of COVID-19 has been so much disproportionately on Pacific Islanders and Native Hawaiians. And many people still don't know that, that in, you know, over a dozen states, the, the number one population that's been impacted have been Pacific Islanders. And so we're seeing now this resurgence of leadership of Pacific Islanders in Pacific Islander organizations that we've never seen before. And again, we should embrace that. We should support that. We should continue to elevate that. Um, it's their moment, unfortunately, because of this crisis that they are being called to that leadership. Thank you. Let's go back to Vincent Cecilia and your global work. You know, it's interesting with COVID-19 that, um, at, yeah, borders started shutting down, but also like this, this narrative that we had to confine whatever data that we we're collecting would be to a certain country, certain region, or all of a sudden it almost felt like, you know, everybody became a little bit secretive. And that's my generalization, by the way, my opinion, like it was hard to get the information. Um, but there's a lot of things that we could blame that on social media, the president, whatever. But go back to your global work and talk about, you know, doing the work and the responses and how effective like you became in other communities because of your work. Uh, we'll start with Vince. <laughs> well, I, you know, I left San Francisco in 2000 and I went to Guam, which is where I'm from. And I was the executive director of the first community-based organization who was funded to do HIV work. And from that, I met a lot of international people, the global networks. And, um, and so in 2007, I joined something called the Seven Sisters, which was a coalition of regional networks. And... I had this opportunity to do some policy work with UNAIDS, and I thought, oh my God, all these things that never made any sense to me in San Francisco in the beginning suddenly made sense. And so it went from there, you know, like, so we need to um, legalize punitive drug laws. Sex work is work. Trans people need their own, um, need their own spaces to organize and mobilize and be respected. Um, being from academia is not the same as being from the populations, um, and our expertise is just as valid as your expertise. So I got to facilitate all these um, questions. I think the first person I tangled with at, UN, at the UN was a former CDC director, and he cited San Francisco. And I'm like, how dare you stand in front of us and cite San Francisco in front of people who don't have those that, you know, and I don't know, and I think they said I was never going to be invited to another meeting again. But lo and behold, not only was I invited to other meetings, I got on their board. And from that, we did things like getting to zero. Um, I was the first non-government person to speak at a high-level meeting in Asia. And they got it all in the, um, like a report. I didn't think anything about it at the time, but it actually had some repercussions. And then it also says, God, it takes 10 to 15 years for policy to trickle out into the world. I'm going to be 80 before I see any results from what I'm doing now. But it was pretty amazing. But, you know, what I learned throughout all of this is there's the work, but it's really the people. And if you can get people to care about their lives, then you're really doing something. Because I think one of the things that really hurt me here in San Francisco was our clients at API Wellness Center 
often refer to them as disposable themselves, as disposable, discardable. And I said, we need to change that. I'll let these two talk. Cause... <laughs> Cecilia. Well, interesting. And then in 2008, I saw Vince at Mexico City, <laughs> the International AIDS Conference. I said, oh, you're here. <laughs> like, um, you know, and that's actually how we reconnected. I don't know if you remember, Vince. Yeah. And and it was also, you know, like and during the conference when we had, you know, the pre-conference, you know, for people living with HIV, you know, across the globe to come together and really like develop, you know, like our like um, policy agendas and recommendations that, you know, like all these discussions about decriminalizations and um and access to care um pops back up. And I think that um I got a lot of education from like being in that room, like with like women from the global South, you know, in Sub-Saharan Africa, who was so used to um, like being harmed by, uh, by men, number one, and also um, of all the misinformations that, that, um, that, you know, they have about how to cure HIV. And so they saw criminalization is the last resort. And, and, you know, like we were able to have conversations, you know, like about, you know, like what actually caused that, you know, and really go back to the fundamentals. And, you know, that's how some of the conversations started to shift. And we start to look at stigma and what stigma is. And, you know, and 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 the next things was the creations of the HIV stigma index. You know, I was um, privileged enough to um be um, representing U.S., you know, on the um, global um, um, GNP, Global Network of People Living with HIV, um, and, you know, and be the chair of it. So, um, and see the harm our country, United States of America, have done to other countries, you know, like, and we have seen, like, um, in the global picture that how, like, um, people were being harmed under the guise of religion. We saw, you know, like, um, people being scapegoated, you know, under HIV criminalization laws. You don't even have to have, like, evidence, you know, to be blamed. Um, and, and also, you know, like, we see homophobia being skewed by HIV as well, you know, like though, even though that it might have nothing to do with the individual, that the individual might not even be gay or anything, but, you know, but they, they get, they, they get attacked a lot, you know, like, and it, it's just really eye-opening and disheartening to see that. Of course, when we talk about homophobia, you know, the most visible, like LGBT folks are transgender women, you know, globally. And so, Guess what? You know, when people talk about anti-gay, they're actually also talking about anti-trans violence because they are the one that, you know, took the fall. So I think that there are so many things, you know, in play here. And it is up to us, you know, like those who are supposed to be providing resources, you know, to the underserved countries, you know, like to um, combat all these different um, different epidemics. And yet, at the same time, when there is vaccine and when there is treatment, guess who are the last one to get it? Those countries. Um, and and to me, I think that it's not fair. You know, like equity needs to be, um, we need to practice equity across the globe to make sure that, you know, like low-income countries get most of the resources first. And I think that, you know, those are conversations that is going to take a while to happen. And at least, you know, like Vince is like optimistic enough that by the time he's 80, he will see like things change. And I'm not that optimistic. I don't think that um, I would see the cure of HIV um, in my lifetime um, because of these kind of like political tug of war that we're going through, you know, like that, totally dismiss, you know, like the needs of the people that they're supposed to represent. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, a conversation that I witnessed. Um, I can't remember if it was UN or the Global Fund, but they were activists from the developed country talking about the medication that was available to the developing countries, and they were calling it crap and shit and da-da-da and whatever. 
And there was an activist from Nepal who I believe is still alive. He said, but this shit is keeping me and my country people alive. Mm. You really need to think, you, <laughs> you pointed at the developed, you need to think about what you say in front of us because we don't have what you have. And when you cast judgment on what we have, you're casting judgment on us. I thought, whoa, I need to really take this in because as so I've always tried to be mindful about that when I'm having conversations, like who am I talking to? Who is the audience? And how can I do this in a way that doesn't take anything away from them? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for those. And we're starting to get some questions from our online audience. So I'll ask those to our speakers. And if you feel strongly or compelled to answer them, go ahead and answer them. And for those of you who are in person here, if you'd like to ask our speakers a question, there's a mic right there in this aisle and just step up and uh, ask your, your question when I call on you. So the first question from our online audience is, it took so long for medical reactions for HIV AIDS to come out, but it took only a year for Operation Warp Speed to get us working vaccines for COVID. Could you talk a bit about how the LGBT world would be different today had they come up with effective medicines in the mid-1980s? Well, I can jump in. And, um, in the program that I manage, we talk about this a lot. If this had happened sooner, how many of our friends would still be alive? Would we be have experienced the traumas that we have, how would our lives be different? And what has come from that is that, but you know, if that hadn't have happened, they would have never come up with this. So, and so I remember someone saying that, so people owe us and we have to collect. I'm like, well, that's one way to look at it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, if this country had responded as quickly to HIV, so we would have a completely different community, but then we might not have the same kind of victories that we've had that have meant so much over the course of time and history. And I'll, and I'll just jump in and say, again, we owe to the activists in ACT UP and so many other groups of really changing the way that we did um, drug approvals in this country. Um, and I think that has obviously had that impact in, in how we had to balance both the science and the data with the need for uh, speed and, and getting something developed uh, quickly. And it also shows, you know, back to Cecilia's point, I was in the conversations with the National Institutes of Health of why we weren't uh, producing uh, women-controlled uh, devices uh, or protections. And again, it was that there was no funding for that coming from the federal government for that. And so why those priorities were there and who was driving those priorities. So again, I think what COVID has taught us is that if if we have the right priorities, we can get things done. And so it's it's not a question of resources, it's a question of political will. And I I cannot agree more. I think that um, it's also kind of irony um, that, you know, one of the first contributors, um, the scientists that contribute to, like, the treatment of HIV is an Asian, Dr. David Ho, um, you know, and, um, but yet, you know, Asian seems to be the last group that got acknowledged, you know, and be visible um, in the epidemic. And I think that if we had the same kind of um, mechanism in place like we do today, HIV would have been, um, you know, would have a very different picture. And I think that, you know, like letting it sit there for like five years really damaged not just people, but it also, you know, like um, created more harms, you know, like in addition to like what the, the epidemic itself caused, you know, which is the stigma and, you know, the unnecessary um, sufferings that, you know, like people living with HIV had. With that said, I think that, you know, San Francisco is a very unique city because, you know, like this is also the city where um, what 86 um, was um, created, you know, to like help with people living with HIV, you know, like and um, they're the first to have the AIDS ward and they have learned so much from treating, you know, like um, people living with HIV. I think that those practices actually was what 
lead to you know, the low death rate of COVID here in San Francisco um, specifically. You know, like we have a lower death rate compared comparing to um, the rest of the country, and you know, and we are one of the first city that declare her immunity compared to the rest of um, the country. I think that, you know, those are really great lessons we've learned, you know, from back then that we've been using. And I'm so proud to be San Francisco and continue to tell people that San Francisco is leading the way. And the last piece of that is also, I know so many of my friends who signed up for the vaccine trials. And so again, we need folks to contribute to that science, contribute to that evidence. And again, I think many people in the LGBT community knew the importance of that and and signed up and participated to get us to where we could have those vaccines. There's so much strength and uh, courage, you know, from our traumas as queer people. And I always lead with the fact that that's magical. Like we're saving the world. We really are. We're super heroes and heroes. And um, the second question, do you think people are paying enough attention to HIV AIDS veterans like yourselves during this time of COVID or are people still trying to ignore such lessons and teachers? <laughs> are we going to have another session after this? Cause <laughs> about generation um, gap. <laughs> Go ahead, Cecilia. I I think that this this is where like different generations have different memories of the impact of HIV, and I think that um, that's also very clear today. You know that um, that because of like the differences in experience, people would um, approach, you know, this epidemic very differently. You know, for some of us, you know, who who are old enough to remember all all that had happened, you know, like we were taking this very seriously, you know, like, so you tell us to like be on lockdown, we, we go on lockdown, you know, like, and you tell us to wear masks, we wear masks, you know, we want to make sure that not just because we don't want to catch it is to make sure that we don't pass it on. And I think that, you know, that's, that's the kind of difference, you know, like we really need people to think about. It's not about catching the disease, it's about spreading the disease. You know, if these like um, protocols will help to control the spreading of the disease, you know, like why do we have to fight so hard? Um, it's not about our own life that we're fighting for. We're fighting for, you know, our family lives, you know, our community's life, our neighbor's life, you know. So I think that switching those conversations a little bit would help a lot. You know, I think aging in general in this country needs to be looked at and reviewed. Um, but I think people, you know, this is where being, being around for so long, it's like we advocated for this for the end of AIDS long before they called it that. Um, I remember a goal was for um, AIDS organizations to go out of business. And so that's happening. You know, and maybe not in the way that we thought. And now a lot of organizations are fighting for their survival as opposed to ours. But... You know, I think at the time, you know, people also need to, I think it's 40 years of HIV. And so this is, you know, it's a fairly young epidemic and we're still, you know, it's still growing. So the story's not completely written, but um, I don't think I, it's, it's a very delicate question because depending on who you speak to, but I think aging in general needs to be looked at and revisited. And I like what I still don't understand is why we don't have universal health care in this country. If anything, if HIV didn't show it, I think COVID actually proved it. And um, but I think that's another panel. Probably I'll leave it at that. I don't want Ignatius to say something. And and I think Michelle, the way I would answer that is, you know, all of us were involved in the early organizations here in San Francisco that were grounded in the LGBT community that responded to HIV and AIDS, and that eventually morphed into the Asian and Pacific Islander Wellness Center. Um, and now the Wellness Center is the San Francisco Community Health Center that is providing full medical services, trans health services. So it's it's also progressed in that. It's yes, it continues its focus on HIV and AIDS, but it's gone beyond to really meet the holistic needs of the community. And I think that's actually progress that we should celebrate. That uh, we don't again have to be just exclusively focus on HIV and AIDS, we can take a a whole person approach um, to health. Mm -hmm. I'm going to save one of our audience questions for last, because I think it's a great last question. Um, But we have a few minutes, so I'm going to continue on here with 
a couple of my own questions. And uh, we touched on the health systems, and I'm curious to know your thoughts or feelings or you know, stories that you might share with the differences of when we're dealing with the HIV, HIV AIDS crisis and the, the impact on the health systems, systems then and then the impact that COVID-19 had on our health systems today. For someone like myself, realizing that our health systems are incredibly fragile and in this vulnerable state was like a wake-up call. Like, I was so shocked and surprised that we were mobilizing our communities to feed our frontline workers. They did, they did not have enough you know, PPE or people were sewing masks or giving away masks um, and things like that. And so if you could share a bit, you know, about um, what you saw as far as the health systems then, like has much changed today? Are we still where we were at with, you know, our infrastructure? Uh, I'm going to turn to Ignatius first, just because I know you do a whole lot of data collection around that. So again, Epidemics and crises show both the strengths and weaknesses. And and again, our system in, of healthcare in the United States is so fragmented. As as Vin said, we don't have universal access. Um, there's so much uh, disparities in how people can access or not access healthcare. And I also think it it also became really clear that while it was so important for there to be hospitals and intensive care units, that really what we needed to back to Cecilia is work on the public health message of, of how do we prevent people from getting this virus? Again, it is preventable. It's not inevitable. And so I think, again, we don't have a culture of public health. We don't have a culture of prevention. And so it's not just about taking care of people who are sick, but it's having all systems aligned so that 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 prevention can work. And again, we're putting billions of dollars into rebuilding our public health departments, um, but I'm not sure we're going to do that in a way that's community focused and community grounded um, and informed by community needs. And so there's still a lot of work to do. Again, it's not a question of resources. It's a question of, uh, of listening to community needs and voices and leadership. You know what to add to that? You might need to cut me off because I have a lot of things to say on this. But um, <laughs> one of the things that we learned, uh, you know, San Francisco loses about two people a day to overdose. More people died from overdose than um, from um, COVID in this. And so a supervised consumption site would help to address that, um, would help to take, provide a safe place where people could could go. And so I think that needs to be looked at. Um, mental health back then was terrible and it's terrible now. Um, people need to realize that housing is health care and that we need to keep people housed. I mean, I don't know what's happening, but, you know, the moratoriums on evictions were lifted last week. Do we have infrastructure? What's happening? You know, is our systems going to be overwhelmed? What did we learn and why did we not plan for this? So there's just a whole lot of things, but I do think, and then the other piece is that we're called long-term survivors, the age generation. Well, now you have a whole group, multiple generations of people who will be the COVID because, and we'll probably have experienced the same kind of mental health, post-traumatic stress. We'll probably need some kind of care in the long term because we don't know where everything is. And to start thinking about that, what can we learn? And what is often used for us is that we didn't plan to live, we didn't do whatever. Um, the system didn't plan. So I think the system needs to start planning now. Anything to add, Cecilia? I know you've said a lot to this as well. Yeah, um, I do. <laughs> I do have a lot to say. I think that, you know, like there's a lot that we have learned from um, the HIV epidemic, you know, and including, you know, like at the time, UNAIDS have come up with um, some recommendations that includes, you know, like that, um, you know, like the the solutions need to be led by the most impacted. Um, they were calling it JIPA and MIPA, which stands for greater involvement of people living with AIDS and, um, and meaningful involvement of people living with AIDS. And I think that, you know, those are um, things that we can actually borrow from what we've learned to make sure that, you know, we listen to those who have been impacted by COVID, who, who have like been, um, either, you know, just recover from COVID or um, still like fighting off, you know, some of these, the 
the um, the conditions that come with you know like um, long term COVID um, that we can learn from them you know to see like what needs to be addressed you know like and like what barriers there are and how to really um, address them so but most importantly I think that things are shifting um, but not as quick as we want it to be because of like bureaucratic reasons you know like but um, at least, you know, in San Francisco, we're trying to set up like um, more community advisory body, you know, to inform like um, public health program development. So um, and you probably will hear about that very soon as well, you know, on some of the mental health services that they're creating, you know, like um, another community board that address, you know, like um, home, um, those who are formerly um, incarcerated and homeless and have mental health. So I think that we are moving toward the the right direction, but the process is so slow and, you know, and there's always like oppositions and resistance. Um, and we'll see, you know, like, but I, I have, I have faith that eventually, you know, like we, we can, we can overcome. Earlier you said you, you weren't optimistic, but now you have faith. And so well, I, I need knew to was because like, I didn't want people to like go home and get all like upset because I said there's no hope. <laughs> wait, 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 because the last question is that does touch on hope and, and faith and, um, you know, how we're all taking care of ourselves. But the uh, question before we get there, though, is uh, earlier you talked about how you know, the community seems to be mobilizing um, a little faster. And throughout this entire hour, we have heard from all of you that, you know, what's important to, to pay attention to is the social impact of, you know, a pandemic. So, for example, racism as a public health issue, homophobia as a public health issue. Uh, I want to bring up that, you know, within a year, uh, an organization like Stop AAPI Hate was able to be created and also collect data that, again, a big shock to me that we were not collecting this kind of data beforehand, which is, you know, these hate incidents that in, uh, impact the Asian community. And so would you, um, you know, talk a little bit about why this was so important, why moving at lightning speed in this way and being able to reach across and talk to one another and create organizations when these crises are happening during a pandemic is so important. We'll start with Ignatius. So I'll, I'll say again, with the internet and our ability to access information and collect those and, and document those incidents of, of hate against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, I think is because we have those tools and just as those tools can also be turned against us and, and fuel the hate and fuel the racism and the homophobia as well and the transphobia now with all the legislation targeting trans people across the country. Um, but I think for me, the takeaway is that we have to, again, take those tools into our own hands and use them in a way that uplifts, back to Vince's point, our voices, our perspectives, our experience. And people can't take that truth and can't take that experience away from us. And so um, that's the important part of using those tools in a way that lifts up our truths uh, in a way that, that people can't deny them and take them away from us. I don't think I can like add too much more to that, but I think that one of the things, you know, this is really crucial is that we're not the only community that are impacted, you know, like, so all the um, all the Black and people of color and Indigenous com community have been really deeply impacted by um, by the lack of access, you know, to um, vaccines and to treatment. And I think that in order to really for these to change, we need to build more alliances and really do some cross-movement um, work um, in order to really get to where we really want to go. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's all I have to say. I really feel that. And since? Well, one of the things that I learned when I worked at Georgetown University was that data changes policy. So if you don't see yourself reflecting the data, you're not going to see programs, you're not going to see funding. And so if you don't see yourself included, you need to speak up. You know, one of the things, I don't think it's an accident that they try to not collect 
the correct data um, for the census that happened recently, and it was unfortunate because COVID. But if we're not there, then we're not going to be seen. And so, um, you know, I think our stories are great, and they can melt your heart, and they can make you feel good, but the data changes policy. 80 emails and text messages to the Board of Supervisors meant one of the things that we were advocating for got raised in priority. And so if you think you can't do anything, you can text, you can email, you can make a phone call. Mm -hmm. So I think there's just, you know, it's important. Absolutely. And so the final question, let's leave on a positive note, and it is a question on um, thriving. Despite some of the horrible experiences through these pandemics, many in our community not only survived, but thrived. How did you how did you thrive and what brought you or how did you find your joy? What brought you joy? How did you get to your joy? Uh, Vince, do you want to start? Actually, I'd like to go last. Okay, we'll let you go last. Ignatius. So I think it's back to a theme that we've talked about, finding those allies. Um, so I really want to echo what Cecilia said is, you know, building those relationships across other communities, particularly other communities of color, uh, particularly women and trans folks that so often get left out of any kind of conversations that are male dominated. And so I think for me, what gave me hope and what got me through was to continue to learn about those allies and other communities and other sectors and movements and see how to connect all those dots together. And I think that's happening again today. And that's, I think, what will get us through, but also will give us hope about a, a different kind of future. Cecilia? When I first started doing this work, um, I really didn't see a whole lot of like trans um, people, whether trans men or trans women, um, who were who were doing the same work. You know, like mostly because you know, like um, not everyone um, was lucky enough to survive. And I think that the other is, you know, like if you're struggling, you know, to sur survive your day-to-day -day challenge, you know, how can you like learn to advocate, you know, like for larger causes? I think that that has since changed. And, um, and today we see more leadership, you know, like from from communities of color, um, from like trans women who um, are ready to speak up and they start leading different organizations. And I think that that gives me lots of hope because we need diversity in leadership, not just in the health um, health system, but we also need it in like promoting social change. Um, like I said, I think that eventually we'll get there, but I'm not sure if we'll get there during my lifetime. So, like, I hope you can all prove me wrong. I will try to get through this. Um, I was told at 28 I would not live to see 30. I'm now 60. Today is also the 30-year anniversary of my partner's passing, and um, actually I didn't want to do the panel today because I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to be in public but I'm kind of glad I did because um, I think I'm the San Francisco success story when it comes to HIV. And it shows that if you give people the right tools, if they have the community, if they have the people behind them, um, we can thrive. And, um, you know, I also lost my dad to COVID. And I just, and all these are hard, but I'm realizing, you know, it just is, it just is. And um, I feel really blessed. I have incredible friends. I have people who believe in me, like Ignatius, <laughs> who used to live here. Like, please don't nominate me for anything or ask me to do anything else. But, you know, and Cecilia, I mean, Cecilia, things didn't look great for you in the 90s, but here you are today. And we have so many people that we don't have the time to acknowledge, but I just feel that knowing that I'm part of this legacy. Okay, I got it just, I don't know, there's just so much love that I feel and so much gratitude and grace. I don't walk on over and give you a hug, and I'm <laughs> going to do that when we turn the cameras off. Um, I want to thank all of our speakers today for all that you give our community and all the work that you do. And I'll answer the question about Thrive. And, you know, I thrive off of your work. I 
am alive today living an incredibly privileged life because of all that you have done. And I want you to know that community knows that. And so thank you, all of you, for all that you do. Vince Christostomo, Ignatius Bao, and Cecilia Chung. Thank you. Uh. I want to thank all of you also for being here with us, both in person and online. Thank you to our partner organizations for being a part of this program. And thank you to Gilead for sponsoring this program here at the Commonwealth Club and making it possible. For more programs, please head to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. We'll see you next time. <laughs>